What a, a glorious number of songs that we were able to sing together and sink into our minds and our hearts together as well. Would you please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke? And we are going to be in chapter 16 this morning. This parable we are going to speak about was told during Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. This is a massive section in the Gospel of Luke. It has a large amount of unique material to Luke. It begins in Luke 9.51 and goes all the way to Jerusalem in 1944. This is a large middle section in it. We, we see a Jesus that is determined in his, minis- in his mission to Jerusalem, and he's also demanding of those who follow him. And this parable, beginning in, in chapter 6, verse 1, is a parable... F- to the disciples on the use of money in their life in light of the kind of Jesus that they serve. Now, you could say it is to the disciples. Similarly, how the parable of the prodigal son, the chapter before, is also to the Pharisees. But it, it is also about the Pharisees as well. In, in, in chapter 16, verse 14, you see the Pharisees are listening in and being the lovers of money that they are, they do not like Jesus' conclusions. And as a matter of fact, they are most irritated, perhaps, by this parable. And there's a good reason for that. This parable is irritating. It's a difficult one, J.C. Ryle would say. It's the perfect summation of what a parable is, according to Sinclair Ferguson, who describes a parable as something that irritates someone. Just think about that when you're reading through the parables. Who is this irritating? Jesus had obviously just irritated the Pharisees a lot with his three parables about lost things. And now he turns to the disciples. This is for the disciples. It is against the money-loving tendencies of the Pharisees. I'm going to read our entire parable here at the onset, and then we will pray. Verse 1 of chapter 16. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. And then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. 
For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this passage. It is interesting, difficult, challenging, but it is inspired. If there is a problem in it, it is that we bring our problemed understanding to it. I pray that you would give us understanding, illumination, understanding in your word and in the proper application of it. Help this passage to sink into our minds and into our hearts today that we may live differently, live for eternity, live to make friends for eternity. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's this movie scene in uh, the movie Pirates of the Caribbean that I have always enjoyed. Will Turner and Captain Jack Sparrow, the two protagonists, just two guys, are performing a ship heist. They choose the largest, it seems, the largest ship to try to steal as well. It is the large and difficult to handle dauntless. And for those of you unfamiliar with Victorian shipping, it wasn't so easy to, sh- uh, to steal a big ship like this. It wasn't something you just push the button and the engine started. It wasn't just turn the key and the, the, the masts come up. You needed a whole crew of men to ready your ship for sea and to manage it in the water. This was a foolish heist, you could say. And that's why the, the Captain Norrington, the apparent villain, the British commander who is seeking to arrest uh, the pirate, Captain Jack Sparrow, sees their efforts to trim the sails and disdains them in his heart and mutters, That is, without a doubt, the worst pirate I've ever seen. But then, when Captain Norrington catches them in his much faster and smaller ship, the Interceptor, he brings his whole crew aboard to recapture the Dauntless, only too late to realize that he has been tricked. And while all of his men are moving on to the Dauntless, Jack Sparrow and Will Turner are jumping aboard the Interceptor, which is now conveniently ready to sail. And the Dauntless mysteriously has been disabled. And this is the great scene. Behind Captain Norrington, another British officer then, then with perfect timing, mutters to himself, that has to be the best pirate I've ever seen. Now, what did this petty officer mean when he said, that has to be the best pirate? Was he praising everything about pirating? Or was he saying, man, when I grow up, what I want to be is a pirate? No, he he was simply saying, I don't like the character or the occupation of this man, but 
Got to hand it to him. That was clever. I would submit to you that that is what is going on in our parable today. That is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is commending a specific thing, a specific conclusion that he wants us to take. This story is tricky. It is irritating. What on earth, initially we want to think, what on earth would Jesus want us to take away from this? Why is Jesus even using this parable? What could Jesus find commendable? How could Jesus apply this message to his disciples? Did he run out of good material? I mean, he just had the mountaintop experience of the prodigal son. Well, here you go, disciples. You can have this next Sunday. We'll we'll break down the answer to this in the message today. I'm going to attack this parable in three parts. Part number one, I want to look at the whole sketchy parable as a whole. And then in part number two, I want us to seek the specific conclusion Jesus wants us to make. And then in part three of our message, we'll look at exactly how Jesus wants us to apply this message. The surprising takeaway that Jesus has for us. So let's, let's move right into it. Part one, we'll call this a sketchy parable. A sketchy parable. Introduction to two individuals. First off, a rich man And secondly, a sketchy employee. First off, we meet this rich man in in chapter uh, 16, verse 1. He appears to be some sort of an absentee landowner in Israel. A true sign of wealth was in owning land. There was actually only a small percentage of the population that actually owned land at this time in Jesus' life. The rest worked the land and paid rent to do so, and, and a part of And part of working the land, of course, was paying that rent to the owners of the land. So what we see here is a truly wealthy individual. There were a few of these men out there in the world when Jesus was telling this parable. Herod, for example, owned nearly half of all of his jurisdiction. This man, as we will see, actually is very wealthy, ludicrously wealthy, you could say. Even his tenants... His tenants who are paying him rent are paying him large sums of rent. And this, of course, is where we are introduced to his sketchy employee. Such a man like this would need someone to manage his vast assets. And we see here a a manager, a, a household manager. The LSB takes it as a steward. That's somebody, the word there refers to someone who is in charge of the house, and, and perhaps we, we see what this man did in, in some ways. He, he managed his master's money, but he also might have been like Luke twelve forty two gives a picture of, and, and the household manager there, this was a man who was responsible for the servants, for paying for wages, and for giving food to the entire household. But this man was sketchy. He was wasteful. We see that there in verse 1. He is very much like the prodigal son that we were just introduced to in chapter 15, verse 13, who was living high on the hog on his father's inheritance. And he's actually very much perhaps like one of those household managers that, that Jesus talks about in chapter 12, 42 through 45, who is a faithless house manager who uses his master's money to feed himself and lords it over his servants and beats them. Now I want you to notice something there in verse 1. 
initially, on the surface, this servant doesn't feel so evil. He is portrayed simply as wasteful, foolish, self-indulgent. And it's surprising, isn't it? Because his master doesn't do to him what we think he's going to do to him. His master doesn't beat him. As a matter of fact, did you notice? His master doesn't immediately cut him off. His master says, you are a wasteful servant here. Have another 24 hours to cook the books and get them to me. Matter of fact, in verse 3, we see the inner makeup of this servant immediately. And, and notice he has no response for his master, except for this thought in verse 3. He says, what shall I do? Since, I'm, since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I'm too ashamed to beg. Now, just real quick, as you can imagine, digging in those times was like digging in these times. You didn't want a digging job. It was a difficult job. It was a menial job. It was, it was kind of the lowest on the totem pole kind of job. It was hard work. This man was afraid of being sent to the bottom. He, he also says, I am not strong enough to dig. He's probably just using a, an idiomatic expression there. It's not necessarily that he wasn't able to dig, it's that he didn't want to dig. And notice here in his, in his inner thoughts, you see something uh, initially about this man and his motivation. And this is very important to understand what's going on in this parable. There is no hint, no desire in him to get in that good with his master, is there? That, that's not on his agenda. What can I do to be restored to my master? How can I show my repentance to him? Maybe if I do this, he'll, he'll let me stay. There is none of that. This man is simply preparing for another house. And that's what we see in verses 5 and 6. And here we see a scheme develop. What's going on here? Well, he is playing off of the cultural obligation of owing someone. In, in such a culture as this, an honor-shame culture, to receive gracious hospitality from someone was to immediately enter you into a state of indebtedness to them. You became socially obligated from within and without around you to return a favor in the future to this man because of the honor-shame culture that they lived in. And look at the vast, vast amounts of money that we're dealing with here. You see a hundred measures of oil... What is a hundred measures of oil? One, two, three, what, what is it? It's actually a, a ludicrous amount of olive trees. It's the product of 150 olive trees in those days. It is 850 gallons of oil for a regular day laborer. It's about three years' wages. And, and what does the, 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 the servant do? He says, quickly, write off 50, 50%, take 50 off. That's a year and a half of wages just written off. And then the other amount, 100 measures of wheat, that's, that's 1,000 bushels of wheat. That is eight years' wages. That's the yield of 100 acres. That's, that's a, yeah, eight years' wages. And he tells him to write off 20%. That's two years' wages. 
Now, most likely, this is just two little examples. This was, this was by no means a small con. We get the sense that, that this is just two of the servants, but the, the, the manager did this with all of his master's servants. This guy is setting himself up for a massive payday. This man is giving himself in, uh, an unlimited inheritance of future favors. And here's the sketchy part. That wasn't even the sketchy part yet. Here, right after this, is when the parable really gets strange. Why? What are we expecting at this moment? We're expecting something like in Luke 12, 46, where the master will come on the day when this wicked household manager is not expecting and cut him in pieces. That's what we're expecting. We're expecting something like Luke 20, verse 16. When the, when the master of the vineyard comes and destroys the tenants of the vineyard and replaces them with others. That's what we're expecting. That's what should happen. Yeah, this, this master, this owner really made a mistake in letting this guy have 24 hours with his books, but he can make it right now. He can cut this servant to pieces and make an example out of him. But what does he do instead? Verse 8. He commends him. Commends. This is a word that is never ironic. It always refers us to praise, or it's an expression of one's admiration for someone. What is he, what is he doing? He's saying, he's saying this. He's not praising everything about this servant. He's saying, I've got to hand it to you. I hate what you did, but I've got to admire how you pulled it off. This master didn't see it coming at all. This was a wasteful, foolish servant who never, who never could get anything done. And this servant was shifty and conniving and scheming and really pulled one over his eyes. He surprised him. He had to commend him. I can't believe you pulled that one off on me. And he calls him shrewd. It means to act with practical intelligence. It means to be prudent, sensible, thoughtful, wise. It's, it's, it's acting with a cleverness about you. It's saying, you had farsightedness that caused you to act with quick initiative and fierce determination. You didn't sleep a wink until you had this thing figured out. I got it to hand it to you. You have changed. You are not the man that I thought you were. And I've got to say, I admire you. And, but here is where it still is sketchy because not only does the master of the house commend him, but verse 8, Jesus also commends this man to us. He makes him a model for his disciples. He says this, you want to follow me? You do this. But here's where we come to uh, kind of an inter, uh, interpretation crossroads. And, and we can't proceed until we really figure out how we are to approach this. And so let's take a few moments to just, just kind of lay out two basic interpretations of what is going on here. 
My position will be very obvious from the beginning, I think. There's, there's two basic ways to interpret this parable. Two ways to make sense of what Jesus is commending. Some like to interpret this parable as a positive parable of a penitent manager who cuts off his own commission in order to ingratiate himself to his master and his master's debtors. He's taking a personal hit. He's saying, you know what, I was ripping off these tenants of yours. I'm just going to take my cut out of it. And that will bring me back to you, my master, and that will also possibly, if that doesn't work, ingratiate me to these other men who will bring me into their house when they see how honest I am, how trustworthy I am. There's a secondary interpretation of this parable that fits under this positive parable category, and it it holds that um, this manager is doing this, but what he's actually doing is he's removing his master's unlawful interest that his master is taking. So essentially he is bringing his master back into conformity with the law of Moses by removing the interest. He's, he's helping his master, and he's helping his master become a better master and have more loyal servants. There's obviously reasons for this positive view. Uh, verse 8 is the only time we are actually told that this man is dishonest. Before that, he is just wasteful. So his dishonesty wasn't before that. And also the other problem is why in the world would the manager commend him? And the biggest problem, of course, is how on earth could Jesus use a bad example like this? But my response to that positive view of the parable is, uh, these may be tough problems, but I do not think they warrant changing things or reading into uh, things in this parable. They don't best explain the parable. If, if If anything, they weaken the parable and the impact Jesus wants us to have. I would say it is very hard to escape the conclusion that Luke and Jesus want us to make about this man. They seem to want us to think he is ripping off his master. Yes, he's not called dishonest until after 5 and 7, but wouldn't it make more sense to see that description as referring to 5 through 7? Hey, in, in a sense, he is two things. He is both wasteful and he is dishonest. This is his life. And we, we see his character come out in different ways as, as his circumstances change. Your heart comes out in different ways as your life around you changes, right? When things were easy... When he had access to his master's money, what came out of his heart? He appears to be wasteful with personal laziness. But when things become hard, when his security is threatened, he is intentionally wasteful, dishonest with personal ambition. He has the same wasteful, dishonest heart all throughout it. Just different circumstances bring out different shades of the same heart. Also, I mean, I can't get around verse 5. Verse 5 seems pretty clear to me that it's his master's debtors he is working with here and not his own. Verse 4 highlights his selfish motives through it all. So my conclusion is it's hard for me to believe that he's acting for anyone else's interests but his own. 
And that is exactly what Jesus wants us to see. And Jesus wants us to be perhaps irritated about that fact. So the second option that I would prefer for how to interpret this parable, and that's how I've been walking you through it, is that this is a negative parable about an evil manager who takes full advantage of all that has been entrusted to him to richly pave his future. That makes sense to me. Now, there obviously are problems with this, perhaps. Why, why is the master commending him? Well, once again, I don't think it's a, a pleasure command. It, it's, it's, it's one of those, I've got to hand it to you, you sure were clever. It's that British officer saying, that's got to be the best pirate I've ever seen. He got us this time, but you won't get me the next time. But how could Jesus commend this man to us? What is Jesus wanting to communicate to you? Why would Jesus say, if you want to follow me, you have to be like that? Well, a few answers. Number one, my favorite, or a favorite one of mine. He's the storyteller. He can do what he wants. But number two, like I said, he's, he's not talking about all this man's actions. He's He's telling us this whole story because he wants to grab your attention. And he wants to irritate you into a sobering, thought-provoking conclusion. What's What's the irritating conclusion that Jesus is after? What is it? This is the second part of our message this morning. We're going to call this the specific conclusion. Jesus has a laser focused conclusion that he wants to make. He's not con doning everything about this man, but his statement begins in the second half of verse 8, where he says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of the light. That is the conclusion he wants you to make. The men of this world, the men who live for this world, and the treasures of this world sure seem to be a whole lot more shrewd with everything they've been given in this life than you guys are. It's not the dishonesty he wants his disciples to mimic. It's the far-sightedness. It's the future-oriented vision, future-dominated life that this man has, that that he wants for his disciples. If you're going to be my disciples, you need to be like this. You need to be all consumed by the future like this. J.C. Ryle in his his, his, his great commentary, it's, it's a devotional commentary, and if you're looking for a little bite to your trip through the Gospels, I commend it to you. It's Ryle's expository thoughts on the Gospels. He really gets after you in every single way. He writes this about this man. Wicked as he was, he had an eye to the future. Disgraceful as his measures were, he provided well for himself. He did not sit still in idleness and see himself reduced to poverty without a struggle He schemed and planned and contrived and boldly carried out his plans into execution. And the result was that when he lost one home, he secured another. Jesus wants you to have the conclusion of this. There is something to be learned from the world in their shrewdness with money 
the sons of this world who live for temporary things put such great effort and scheming into their lives. They are more shrewd. Notice he's saying there's a, there's a deficit in your skill. They are more shrewd than you, than the sons of the light. Of course, we know this. We know this very well. There are many examples. The world is filled with wicked criminals who choose crime to get rich more than honesty because they can make more money. Cybercrime is up. Hard work is down. People, when given the choice, are hard-pressed between how they want to pursue wealth. It is very easy to use their skill and ingenuity to make, make money for themselves. And they will choose that. And they are brilliant in their evil. But Jesus is also saying, Jesus is, is making a, a lesser to greater sort of argument. Can you see that as well? The sons of the light have an even greater payday that they should be motivated by. They should seek after. A greater personal benefit that they should pursue. He's saying, how much more should you, the sons of the life, uh, of the light, maximize and seek after eternal rewards with the temporary things that you have been given? Once again, Ryle says this, it may well raise within us great searchings of heart, the diligence of worldly men, and about the things uh, the, the diligence of worldly men about the things of time should put to shame the coldness of professing Christians about the things of eternity. The zeal and pernacity of men of business encompassing sea and land to get earthly treasures may well reprove the slackness and indolence of believers about treasures in heaven. Do you see what Ryle is saying there? How much more should we work and scheme? We have a payoff that lasts forever. It should awaken us. If these people are going to work so hard for such a temporary gain, how much more should we work for eternal things? Here's an idea for you. Do you ever try to daydream prayer? Pray? Daydream pray? What does that mean? You dream and pray as you dream about what God might be able to do with your small little portion that you give Him every week. That's what we do when we pray. We say, Lord, this is small, but you can do great things with this. That's why we put our treasure here. This is why we invest in eternal things like the proclamation of God's Word, the spreading of the Gospel, because we know God can do massive things with our small little amounts of money that we give to Him. This is the spirit of 2 Thessalonians 1, 11-12, one of my favorite verses and prayers in the Bible. Paul says this, "...to this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God." Notice, 
you pray that God would resolve or to work and do your every resolve for good. Lord, take this resolve in me for good and, and use it for your glory. Jesus is making a lesser to greater argument. How much more should we be motivated? And of course, Jesus has another specific conclusion here. And it's simple, and we've been driving at this. Use your money for the eternal good of people. Jesus isn't, I wouldn't say, saying, give all your money away to the poor. That's not what he's saying at all. Notice he's saying something very different. He's pressing us to make our money matter more. To make our money work the hardest we can for God and His purposes. To be good stewards of what God has given us so that we can get the most out of every dollar that we have been entrusted with. We seek to be free of financial chains so that we can be nimble for gospel purposes with the resources that we have been given. And this leads to our third part. We have that sketchy parable. We've got a specific conclusion, but I have a surprising takeaway. A surprising takeaway. I didn't read all that Jesus had to say. Jesus actually has some very fascinating applications and conclusions that he wants us to take. So here it is. Three surprising applications to our shrewd parable here. Number one, don't wait until you're, or, you're older to give. Don't wait until you're older to be generous. This is what he's saying in verse 10. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. This is an obvious truth, right? Your character will show regardless of what you have. Your heart will demonstrate itself maybe in different shades and different colors, but it will demonstrate itself in whatever you have, whether that's a lot or a little. If you're wicked with a little, you will be wicked with much. If you are faithful with little, you will be faithful also with much. Faithful, it means trustworthy in managing. In managing the stewardship that you've been given to accomplish your master's plan. I love that word little. It's referring to a small amount of something. But notice, notice what it's really saying. What it's really saying is uh, the gift of generosity is not for those with wealth. Matter of fact, if you're waiting to get money before you start practicing generosity, you probably won't do it. Generosity is learned with little. It is learned when you're young. It is practiced in your small ways. It is cemented into your character when you have less. It is hard to start practicing generous shrewdness when you have a lot. You need to start now. That's why when I, when I told this parable to the, the students with a, with a kind of a smile in my eye, I said, do you realize this parable has more application to you and your life than it probably does to your parents? Don't wait until you're older. 
practice these things when you're young, when it's easier. There's another application, surprising application. And it's basically this. You're, you're supposed to be motivated. You're supposed to be motivated for a reward. Sometimes, perhaps, we have this misconception about eternal things. Oh, I, I'm not motivated by rewards in heaven. But Jesus seems to say, hey, you should be motivated by rewards in heaven. The shrewd servant was motivated, and Jesus commends him. Uh, why was he motivated? Because he was in danger of homelessness. His days were numbered. Before this, he was wasteful and he was lazy. But suddenly he is quick and he is decisive and cunning and smart and wise and crafty. But he is motivated out of purely selfish ends. Uh, Jesus says we should be motivated in a similar way, but in different ways at the same time. Notice what he says in verse 11 and 12. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? It's a tricky couple of verses. Go home, read that over a few times, and maybe you'll change your mind on what it's saying. It took me a long time. What is Jesus saying here? These two verses actually are very identical in construction. They, they, they look the same. They interpret each other. You should, you should draw them both out on a line underneath the other and, and see how they parallel and interpret one another. Right? Uh, verse 11. If then you have not been faithful. Verse 12. And if you have not been faithful. Verse 11. The unrighteous wealth. Verse 12, in that which is another's. Verse 11, who will entrust you? Verse 12, who will give you that which is your own? Verse 11, true riches. Verse 12, your own. A lot to be gleaned from that, but those are parallel constructions to each other. And the big idea here is you are a steward of all your possessions, including all your money that you make, and Jesus uses a difficult phrase there, unrighteous wealth. It, it, it refers to worldly currency of this life. Unrighteous wealth probably is not a moral statement, but it's a temporary statement. This is worldly wealth. It doesn't last. It is, it is unrighteous. It's not eternal. It, it, it has capacity for good and for bad, but it is temporary. That's what he's saying by unrighteous wealth. And, and notice, you know it's not completely evil because what he tells you to do with it, we are called to be faithful with unrighteous wealth. And we are called, verse 9, to make friends for eternity with it. It's temporary. That's its problem. Put it, put it in kind of biblical terms, illustrative terms. Uh, such wealth belongs to this world and should always be remembered as passing. As it says in Proverbs 27-24, riches do not last forever. 2 Peter 3.10 It will all be burned up. 
This is what Jesus is saying. Hey, you are all stewards of everything that you possess. And this is not just a truth for Christians either. Everybody has been entrusted with things in this life. What are they going to do with this? The unrighteous wealth, the, the worldly currency that we amass is not to be thought of as our own, but did you see how he parallels it? It is another's. We are to think of it as though it is not even our, our own. We are to think of it in 1 Timothy 6-7 language when Paul writes, we brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of it. Or we are to think of everything we have been given in Psalm 24, 1-2 language. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. We are just stewards. Everyone is just a steward. Everyone is managing things that truly belong to another. Does all of this bring motivation? Jesus is pressing home on this. He's saying, you have true riches. The true, literally, in verse 11. Luke 18.22 has the rich ruler. Uh, He was called to leave money in order to find treasures, the true, in heaven. How does does Jesus describe the true riches in in parallel? He, He describes them as your own. Notice, you can have temporary things in this life, but really, if you think about it, they belong to another. You will soon pass and fade and they will be owned by another. Or you can pursue things that are true, that are everlasting in value, and they are called your own, verse 12. Jesus, is he, is he suggesting something here about the quality of eternal dwellings and rewards? I think so. You don't notice, by their eternal quality, the things that we can earn as a reward, they are considered ours. They are considered ours. Present faithfulness in stewardship will pay you back in permanent possessions, permanent rewards. This is what Jesus says once again to his disciples in Luke 18, 29. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children. And then he gives the reason, for the sake of the kingdom of God. So he's not just saying anybody who leaves anything is going to get riches in heaven. No, he's saying you do this specifically for the sake of the kingdom of God, or as Mark 10, 29 puts it, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not get two results. Result number one, Luke 18 tells us, who will not receive many times more in this time. Mark 10 includes with persecutions. He's saying, result number one, If you leave behind things for the sake of the gospel, you will get many more things. Both in this time and result number two, and in the age to come. You will receive a hundredfold and will inherit. There are rewards in following Jesus. There are rewards in being shrewd with your finances, and Jesus is saying this should motivate you true to true stewardship. You have been entrusted with temporary things you cannot keep, and you are working for rewards that will belong to you forever. That's an easy choice. 
what do I want to hang on to? These temporary things that don't belong to me? Or eternal things that will be with me forever? Jim Elliott, a, a missionary who died a martyr's death in Ecuador at age 28, leaving behind a wife and a, and a young daughter and a promising career, said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's an obvious choice. This is, this is mine. This is another's. But a final specific application. And I wouldn't say this, but Jesus says this, so we must say this. Jesus also, thirdly, wants more than a balance in your life of money and God. Be careful with the safe application here. Uh, be careful with just the statement of, I just need to learn to balance my life. need to learn to balance the physical things and the spiritual things. Just kind of have a, kind of have a balance in my life. I need to be generous with some, give to some, save to some. Notice verse 13, Jesus wants more. He wants more from you than just a balanced life with your finances. You must, he says, love God and use money to love God. Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Don't try to balance the two. Notice here, it's a terrifying description, isn't it? Money is personified as a potential rival master in your life. It's as if Jesus is saying, there will be a time when either money or God must be slighted in the preference of the other. Who will you serve? You can't just seek a balanced life. God demands more. You must love God above all. And this is a little bit surprising to me because I just preached a sermon to you on being a steward. Jesus wants you to be more than just a good steward. I mean, think of the rich young man. I bet you he was a good steward of his possessions. I bet you he was generous. But he had nothing. It seems to me most important that you steward your money with a love for God that is supreme. He didn't have that. Luke 18 tells us it wasn't that the rich young ruler had to give more to some sort of charity or to his local synagogue. It wasn't that he needed to be a better steward of the things that he had. He needed to follow Jesus. And his money showed that his heart was ruled by riches. Sometimes, giving is essential in your life because the love of money can get in the way of following Jesus. In the end, what is the end time shrewdness that Jesus wants you, his disciples, to have? Five words. Use money to love God. 
You love God, you use money. Those who love God are shrewd with their money so that they can love God more with it. They are careful. They don't waste things. They are generous, but they are always generous with a certain end in mind. Can this be used? Can this opportunity, can this moment, can this resource be used for the furtherance of the gospel? Verse 9. I love verse 9. It's a powerful image. Did you read it too quickly? I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fades, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Someday, could it be that you will be received into God's presence being met by someone that you never even met because of what you did with your money, it would be enough, wouldn't it, to be received by Jesus alone, but He almost promises us more here. Those who are shrewd for eternity have friends for eternity, are met by people in eternity that have become their friends, that come to you with tears in their eyes of gratitude for how God's grace has so transformed your life to use it to spread the gospel to them. Someday could it be that you will be met by someone you never met who is your friend for eternity. Someday could it be that you will be met by one of these little toddlers running around this building who comes to you with tears of thanksgiving in their eyes for how you were shrewd for eternity. What are you living for? What are you scheming for? What are you daydreaming about? Make friends for eternity. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, thank you for this passage. And I pray that you would bring its message thundering home into our hearts and change our perspective. Thank you for your grace and your favor that so transforms us. Thank you for your grace and your favor that brings us into your presence apart from any works of our own, but solely on the righteousness of Christ and allows us to serve you in that righteousness. Pray now that we would be eternally minded, far-seeing people be scheming for friends for eternity. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.